You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. Guys, good morning. I'm so grateful to be here with you all this morning. My name is Alex Glasson. I am a pastoral resident here at GBC. And yeah, just grateful to be giving this message uh, with you guys this morning. So when I first shared with one of my coworkers, you know, years ago that my wife was pregnant for the first time with our son, Judah, I remember my boss at the time, he looked at me and he said, like many of them probably have, get your sleep now while you can. And I said, yeah, 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 I've heard that so many times, but boy, was I in for it. When our son was born, as any uh, parent of young children knows, uh, the life of adjusting to newborn sleep was just no joke. It was an adventure of its own to learn how to rock a child to sleep, to figure out what they like, to rub backs, wake up in the middle of the night, uh, all of those things, huge, huge adjustment. And at first, I think I thought that there was sort of some magical formula to help a child fall asleep at night. I thought it was like, if you sing this exact song, plus, you know, 30 rocks a minute, kind of like a nice rhythmic beat, like then that equals magical baby sleep. Uh, But I was wrong. I was definitely wrong because the reality is that every child is different. Every child is super different. It doesn't really necessarily matter. Like the things that you do, your goal is to help them calm down, to soothe them, uh, and to help them to feel secure. And so for me, a lot of the process that just took a lot of learning was like getting to know my children. So my son, for example, my wife and I joked that he just loved constant motion. We said he liked a brainstem jiggling rocking because uh, he, just, he just loved motion. My daughter, she could care nothing for rocks. Like she really doesn't like it. She just wants you to lay her down and rub her back. And that is how she goes to sleep at night. Uh, and so even to this day, if my daughter is having a night where she's having a hard time going to sleep, I'll be sitting on the couch. She'll be laying in her crib and she'll go, Dada! Dada! And I know that she wants me to come in, rub her back, and usually if I do that for maybe 30 seconds, she's out like a light. That's what she likes. She likes back paths. I don't know. I think they're kind of nice too, honestly. <laughs> so I'm not sharing this to talk about sleep techniques or anything, especially for young parents. You're going through the throes of it. I'm a disclaimer, I have no tips. I have no ideas. But I think there's just one thing that seems clear that our kids are looking for as they're going to sleep at night. They're looking for a sense of security. That old familiar song they hear, the presence of mom or dad, a voice that they know or recognize, someone who knows their needs, and someone that they know will take care of them. They might not put words to it, but in their hearts they're sort of saying, I need to know that my mommy or daddy are here with me, that they're going to take care of me, that everything's going to be okay. And then once they feel that sense of security, that at least is one of the ingredients to help them to fall asleep. So today's text that we're going to be in is much like our Father's comfort and security for weary believers seeking to persevere in their faith. It's kind of like we're walking with Jesus and we're looking up at our Father in the dark of the night and we're saying, Father, are we going to make it? Lord, are we going to be all right? And here he is in this text. He's sort of that Father kind of rubbing our back saying, it's okay, we are going to make it. You can rest in me, my child. So today we'll be in Romans 8, 28 to 39, which is on page 944 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you want to flip there now. 
So last week, Pastor Ty walked us through the earlier section of Romans, which was really all about suffering. The Apostle Paul brings us face to face with the reality of suffering in our world. But Pastor Ty last week helped us to see that as Christians, we don't suffer, you know, hopelessly. Uh, And actually, in some ways, we should expect a little bit more suffering in this world because of our discipleship to Jesus. But when we suffer, we suffer knowing that there is this amazing glory that is to come. The glory of heaven will not even be compared with the suffering we experience today. So, in essence, the suffering today will be worth it. And all Christians will look back uh, on that side of of glory with the same conclusion, it was worth it. It was worth it. So the section we are in today picks up in verse 28. It's one of the greatest sections of the whole New Testament. And how like our God to put suffering and glory right next to each other. How like him to do that. So we have to pray because I'm going to be honest with you, I am not competent enough to unpack all the beauty and glory there are in these verses. So let's come into God's presence together and ask for help. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for this church family that that is such a gift to us. Lord, that we can gather together as a family under your word, Receive this as your word to us, Lord. The truths today that we are unpacking are so glorious, so magnificent and wonderful. And honestly, Lord, we are weak. God, even our hearts are unbelieving. Father, soften us this morning. Open our eyes this morning that we might see the glory of our security in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read this passage together. This is the word of God. Pick it up in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. All right, there you go. That's the sermon for the day. We can all go home. (laughs) Enough said. Okay, but really, I'll try my best to unpack these truths as we meditate on them together. To help us guide our time, I have three main points for today. The first is this, the tapestry, the golden chain, and the fortress. 
Let's pick up at the first point, the tapestry. Our passage starts with one of the most well-known promises in all of the Bible. All of the Bible. Every Christian, I would, I would argue every Christian should know this promise by heart. And every non-Christian, frankly, should know this promise because this is what God offers to every non-Christian should they love him in return. And here's what Paul says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. What an incredible promise. But what exactly does it mean? Do we know what it means? The first thing that I would unpack from this, from this promise is first, there is a condition. We know that for those who love God. So is this a promise that's sort of just, it's just a blanket statement, like everything's gonna be all right. Don't worry for all people in all places. Like this applies to everybody. The answer according to this text is no. This promise has a condition. The condition is this, for those who love God. Okay, that is who this promise specifically applies to. That's the condition. There's no promise without first meeting this condition. So then the question is, what are, are we supposed to just sit here and be like, oh, well, that sounds like a great promise. I guess I should just, you know, muster up in myself some kind of love for God. Is that what we're supposed to do to, to meet this condition? No, clearly not. The Apostle John writes, uh, we love because he first loved us. Anyone who has ever loved God, ever, and there's not a single person who has ever loved God who has not known God's love for them first. God's love always comes first. And then we respond to his love with love. That would be what his desire is for us. So once we know God's love for us, we return his love for him. And then the promise comes. All things work together for good. In short, it means this. Everything in your life, every circumstance, every blessing, every suffering, every last drop of it, God will use for your good. For your good. I think that concept is hopefully, at least you get the high level idea. I'm going to share a quote and an illustration that will hopefully help us to see the depth of this. So almost always the biggest objection to this promise or any sort of promise like this in scripture is, well, it doesn't feel like God is working all things together for my good. It doesn't feel like life is that way. It does, that doesn't really seem true in a sense. Life is hard. And maybe for some of us, frankly, there are seasons where life just gets harder. And we might be looking at God saying like, really? Are you really for me? But here is the quote that I have found helpful. And it's this. God's heart is always for us, even when his hand is against us. God's heart is always for us, even when his hand is against us. His hand allows suffering into our lives for a time, but always for our ultimate good. In the Old Testament, his hand let his people hunger in the wilderness for a time that they would learn to ultimately hunger for him. His heart has always been for his people, even when his hand is against his people. This is our father. And re the reality is any father knows that this is true. When you have to discipline your child, frankly, uh, you know, your child might hate your guts. <laughs> that child might not understand why they're grounded or for younger children, why they have to do a timeout. Uh, but your heart as a father is actually for their future. You're seeking to, to save them or deliver them from some destructive habit. And so there is a discipline or a consequence. This is the same with our father. His hand may come against us, but his heart is always for us. 
Here's the illustration. The great Corey Ten Boom was born and raised in Harlem, Netherlands, and lived there during the time of World War II. In her book, The Hiding Place, great book, highly recommend reading it, uh, she tells of the story of her family, how during the time of World War II, they housed uh, Jews as stowaways in their house. Uh, And they kept them in sort of, they went through a lot of work to make sure that they could be safe in their house. And they were able to ship off hundreds and hundreds of Jews into the country so that they could be safe during World War II. It was a very tense time. And there comes a point where the Nazis find out that they're doing this and they take the whole family and they put them in concentration camps. So Corey, her sister Betsy, the rest of their family, they get imprisoned in Auschwitz um, and a couple other concentration camps. And even while they are there, their family remained firm in their conviction and confidence that God was good and still at work, even in the camps. Betsy, Corey's sister, who she always, she talks in the book how she is the holy one and the good one, the one who loves God and always has the right perspective. She dies in the concentration camps, but Corey was released. So after the war ends, Corey travels around the world, sharing her testimony of the light of God in the dark pits of Auschwitz. Her testimony is truly remarkable. And here's her illustration that she would often share. She would hold up sort of this ratty-looking work of embroidery, which maybe we'll we'll put on the screen. Uh, And she would read this poem that she said she learned in America. Here's the poem that she would read. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I do not choose the colors he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the skillful weaver's hands as the thread of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. So from the bottom of the embroidery, sort of the pattern looks all tangled and frankly, it's, it's ugly. We don't really understand. It doesn't make any sense. But in the end, when we sort of flip over this pattern, God was always weaving together a golden, beautiful crown that would display his glory and his goodness and show his beauty and his worth in suffering. This is what God is doing with every one of our lives if we love him. He weaves together all the pieces to make a beautiful story that will tell of his love and grace. And I need to make just a disclaimer here. This is not some trite saying like, oh, everything's going to be all right. That really has just no grounding. This is the rock solid promise of God. This is not my promise to you. This is God's promise to you. And frankly, I don't, I don't personally really know the depth of the reality of this promise. Some of you likely know it a lot deeper than I, but I'm sharing this as people who are standing on this promise. The Apostle Paul stands on this. Corey Tenboom says, this is what I stood on in my suffering. This is what you and I are to stand on in the hours of darkness in our lives. This is, a real, this is an unbreakable truth. I want to ask, do you see hope in this? Do you see hope in this? Do you see a circumstance in your life where you're like, yes, I have forgotten this and I need to remember that my God works all things together for my good. Back to our theme of sleep. John Stott uh, called this promise in Romans 8.28, the pillow on which we rest each night. We rest because this promise shows us that we do not need to fear tomorrow because God will use everything for our good. He's making a beautiful tapestry, so incredible 
you and I can't even imagine. That brings us to our next point, which is two, the golden chain. So the question that maybe arises for some of us is we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, but how do I know like, that my love will continue to go? Like, how do I know? What if my love runs out? What if my love falters? Then what? That's where the Apostle Paul, in a sense, is anticipating that question. And that the glorious promise of verse 28 leads right into the truths of verse 29, which are often referred to as the golden chain. The Apostle Paul here is giving us a link, a chain of sequential steps in salvation that you could say are interconnected. If you have one of these, you have all of them. That's what, that's what Paul is sharing with us. If one of them has happened, all of them have happened. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he, here's the chain, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in these two verses, there's a logical link between sort of, in a sense, the steps of salvation. The Apostle Paul begins by saying, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. We're going to do a quick aside here for a moment. Before I go on, some of us get hung up on this idea of predestination in the Bible. Uh, Like if everything is predetermined and God has sort of this plan for everything, then what am I supposed to do? Just sit around like a rock and like wait for his will to happen? I'm really not going to touch on this much because this is actually a lot of the topic of Ty's sermon next week in Romans 9, that he's going to help us navigate that. Uh, but I will say that God's, God's will never makes man's will void. So there's God's willing, but God often, he, he does, sorry, he, will, he acts through our willing. So they both go together. We must act and we are accountable, but God also acts in and through our willing. We both have a part to play. And again, another aside, if you want to discuss topics like Calvinism, Arminianism, I guess there's another one called Molinism. You guys probably already knew about that. We have a class on Romans led by Dr. Dave Brzezinski during the 11 o'clock where they're going to have time to go in through all of those in in depth. And I think that's a really worthwhile discussion. I would encourage you if you have that uh, capacity for that, do that. We just don't have time for it here this morning. Okay. We're back. (laughs) Jumping back in. Verse 30 goes on like this. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's what it means. There's a link, a golden chain, between predestination of God, the calling of the believer, the justification of the believer, and the glorification of the believer. If you've been justified in Christ, meaning you have genuinely believed in Jesus, repented of your sin, and given your life over to him, you will be glorified. The word glorified, is in, it's in the past tense, even though it's a future action. That's the idea. It's like Paul's saying, this is as good as done. If you are a genuine believer, this is, and you've been justified, you've put your faith in Christ, your glorification is as good as done. This is your security. All genuine believers will persevere. And here's why this matters, why this is significant. When you and I believe and we start following Jesus and God leads us in that path, frankly, to, to, to go the straight and narrow road sometimes gets really hard. In the terms of like the parable of the soils uh, where, you know, there's a seed cast around, it's like the sun gets really hot sometimes. And life can be super challenging and there can even be points where you might ask yourself or ask God, like, gosh, like, am I going to even make it? These doubts are so loud. My sin is just a lot. This pain is so much. 
I feel broken and far from God. I've certainly been in those spots more than once. And it's actually in those moments that you come to this verse. It's in those moments that you say, no, here is my golden chain. I may have these brutal doubts, but here is my God who has secured my salvation and he will bring me through. I believe he will bring me through. It's the reality of what it means to be saved. To be saved is to be secure in Christ, to have that security, that deliverance, that we rest, that it's not you or I that sustains us. It is God who will sustain us. And here is his promise here in this text. All right, that brings us to point number three, which is this, the fortress. Romans 8, 31, and we'll throw in 32 there as well, are, are just one of the most profound statements of all scripture. The Apostle Paul writes this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There is one sense that this is like the climax of the book of Romans, is this verse. If you think about chapters one through seven are all sort of building the stage for chapter eight. Chapter eight, in one sense, has kind of been building a stage to this verse here. If God is for us, who can be against us? All of us had one point or another in our lives where God, in a sense, was against us. We were his enemies. That he had a will and a plan for our lives, but we despised his ways. But then there comes a day when a person puts their faith in Christ where something shifts. The day you put your faith in Christ, something changes. God is no longer against you, pushing against you, but rather he's for you. He's for you. There's a sense that you've switched sides. And kind of we realize on the other side, looking back, that God was never ultimately against us. He was always pushing against us to humble us that we would learn to repent and to seek him. That's what Paul writes earlier in Romans. That's verses 20 and 21. One commentary referred to this position of God for us as like a strong and truly invincible fortress. This is the fact of final security. My God is for me. And if you envision this fortress this is not something that any person can just go, well, like, well, I want God to be for me. So I'm just going to ask him, God, will you, will you be for me? And then he'll just like put you in the fortress. You have to be perfectly good in a sense that God could say, I am 100% back and behind you, for you. So we don't enter through this fortress by our own merits. There is the gate that is Jesus. Like Christ and his righteousness is the way that through him, we enter into the secure fortress of God for us. Here's the image that I picture, a little bit of a nerdy one. So in J.R.R. Tolkien's Silmarillion, which is a precursor backstory to the Lord of the Rings for, again, all those really nerdy folks like myself, there's a city called Gondolin that's hidden inside of the mountains. The city was so hidden and, you know, the mountains around the city were so steep that there was only one little hidden passageway to enter into the area where the city was and very few people knew about it. So it made this castle, not only was it protected by, you know, gates on the outside, seven gates, but also the very mountains protected it. So the castle was unassailable. You could not even come to the castle to attack it. It was that protected. 
It led to the castle standing for four centuries in Tolkien time, untouched by the evil king Morgoth. It's not a perfect illustration because Gondolin does eventually fall, but you get the picture. This unassailable castle is what it means that God is for us. When we sit in this, we rest in the security that God is for your ultimate good. In Christ, God says, I want what is good for you and I will bring that about. He is for you. Does that mean that there are no more enemies? No more people that would, that would come against us or come against Christ? The answer is no. But none of, none of the enemies that would exist have power against this fortress. God is for us. That's what Paul considers in the rest of this chapter. He goes on to say this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We already see in these first three verses afterwards the enemies that may come against us. The first is charges. Think of this as as names or accusations. You're a thief. You're a sinner. You're an adulterer. While those things may have been true before Christ, God has dropped the charges. Forgiven in him. No more charges from him. Here's the second one. Who is to condemn? Very similar, but think of this as someone saying, you're hopeless. You are worthless. You're good for nothing. All those names and accusations that can come against us for our faith or even for just any reason, those names that can come against us. Man or Satan may try to come and condemn us, but God will never condemn those who are in Christ. We stand firm in the fortress of forgiveness. What else could assail this fortress of God for us? The apostle goes on. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, and again, this is the list of the things that can come against us. And he's saying, none of these things, none of these things can separate us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The question, who, should, who could separate us, is sort of answered by all the things that honestly we, and I would include myself in that, in our weakness would think, oh, maybe, maybe this could separate me. Maybe death could, maybe life could separate me. Maybe things that could come could separate me. But here's God saying, nothing, nothing can separate you from me. This is your security in me. Stand in it. Stand in it. One other phrase I want to look at specifically in this section is Paul declares in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Think of it this way. I saw this illustration from John Piper. It's a good one. A conqueror is someone who has defeated their enemies. Literally in battle, the conqueror's enemies lie dead. But if you think about more than a conqueror is like the conqueror's enemies, which in in our case, we're talking about life, death, tribulation, famine. Those lie dead and then they're actually resurrected And now they're serving us. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror. So actually, none of these things can no longer separate you, but now they actually serve to make you like Jesus. They are part of the tapestry. 
The golden chain says that they cannot separate you. And in the maker's hands, they accomplish his purpose laid out in verse 29, which is to form you and I into the image of Christ. So to recap, the passage shows us the incomparable security of God's people. Any believer in Christ, we begin by detailing the beautiful tapestry that God is making with your life, the golden chain that it cannot be broken, and the fortress of God for us that we stand in. I mean, that is our security. I'm like, we could do anything, right? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. All right, that's good. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, These are really glorious truths. Again, we're just touching the surface. A lot of this, I I think and believe, has to be in in one sense experienced in your heart and your daily reality. We could talk about this, but this is, these are like the daily truths. You carry these to your classes. You carry these to your conversations, to your family dynamics, to your sickness. Like that's where you really come to experience the reality of these truths is when you say, Lord, let me see this in whatever it is that I'm walking through. I have two applications for today. The first is this. The first is this. Take a rest. Take a rest. Some of us simply need to actually internalize these truths. We've heard this type of passage or this type of sermon before, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, "Ah, I'm just not sure I believe it. I believe in Jesus, but like, is this really true? And for those of us in this room that are in that camp, we just need to hear our loving Father's voice calling to us to rest in these truths as he puts us to sleep each night. For those of us in this room in that camp, my challenge to you would be actually just to think about Romans 8.31. Memorize that and think about it as you go to bed. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that. Honestly, I still do this to this day. <laughs> and frankly, if you think about this verse before bed, I bet you'll sleep better too. <laughs> I'm no expert. I'm no expert, but I bet you will. And I would say if there's any non-believer here today, you're not a Christian, you haven't put your faith in Christ, and you're saying to yourself, man, that sounds really good. I need security. I need a refuge. I need a fortress in this dark world. I think that's true. I think we all do. I I do certainly too. I can only give you sort of the friendly advice. Uh, Come on in. Come into the castle. This is a good place. It's a good place to be. Your God, he wants to be for you. And what are you waiting for? Place your faith in Christ today. All right, so that's the first application. Take a rest. Here's the second application. Take a risk. Some of us have known these truths for a while, and frankly, the way for us to internalize them is to live them out. So, uh, and I'm going to share a couple examples, and for each of these, I want to just, the disclaimer is like, anything I'm going to say, also process through it with, you know, prayer, seeking the wisdom of others. But once you've done that, perhaps there's a chance that God is challenging you. Take a risk. Perhaps for you, this means taking the risk to share your faith. Engage with one of your classmates or one of your coworkers. Before I worked here uh, at, at GBC, I worked in the corporate world for a company called DaVita. And I know uh, how difficult it can be in the workplace to share your faith. It could be awkward sometimes. It could be like, I don't know what's going to happen if I do this or share. Uh, but our, our Father is calling us to engage with those around us and take those steps. And I believe that you will meet God as you take those steps of faith to share your faith. Or steps of faith to share your faith. So it might be some of you, perhaps some of you, uh, this means taking the scary step uh, towards adoption or foster care. Something that may come with risk, but would be a way to faithfully love like Christ. Or perhaps for you this morning, maybe it just means taking the scary step to repent, 
to love your neighbor, to confess sin, to admit that you're responsible for something and to say sorry, to take a step up, to be the man of your home, to say yes to Jesus. Take a risk in following Jesus in your everyday life because you can rest that God is for you. He won't leave you. For some of you, this means considering a bigger step, like going to the mission field and trusting God for your future there. I'm gonna be honest, that will take some serious risk. It will cost us time and money. But in Christ, we are so secure, we are able to spend it all for the sake of his kingdom and his glory. All right, I'm gonna close with an example of someone who I believe lived this truth out. So a number of years ago, I read the biography of Jim Elliott, which I'm, sure, I'm guessing many of you have read. Um, but for those of you that have not read this, it's written by his wife, Elizabeth Elliott. And so the story goes essentially that there were four couples who desired to go and minister to a group of unreached people groups in Latin America. And this indigenous people group uh, had never heard the gospel. They did not have the Bible in their language, anything like that. They were known to be hostile, but the four uh, missionary couples went through years of training to get uh, language preparation. And one, one man was trained as a pilot so they could fly over and you know, drop gifts to sort of start building that relationship with them. So one day they are there to engage uh, with the tribe and they're trying to make contact. And uh, all four men are killed in one of the days that they are going to engage with this tribe. A few years later, um, Elizabeth Elliot, again, wife, uh, wife of Jim Elliot, one of the ones who had died, goes back with another one of uh, the wives and they try to re-engage with this tribe. And through effort and, you know, building that relationship, they're successful. And actually most of the tribe ends up coming to Christ. Which is, it's an amazing story of faith and resilience and perseverance, uh, forgiveness, and all of those things. But the thing I want to actually share with you this, this morning is the name of the book is very paradoxical. And I didn't really realize it for a long while after. The name of the book about Jim Elliot is called The Shadow of the Almighty. That name comes from Psalm 91, which is the greatest protection psalm in all of the Old Testament. It says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. But that doesn't make sense. That makes zero sense. The main character of the story, the one who the majority of the narratives are his journal entries, dead, murdered. Why would you put this as the title? But Elizabeth Elliot is far more godly than I am, and she does this intentionally. Jim Elliot was known for saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot could not keep his life. Either death would take him unwillingly or he would give his life willingly. But the promise in Christ for those who give their souls to Christ and lose themselves to him is that they are the ones who actually gain their lives. Jim Elliot, God protected Jim Elliot in his ultimate salvation. Death was not death for him. Death was actually a servant transporting him into full life with Christ. That's the ultimate security of God's people. And the ultimate security of God's people leads to bold living for his glory. The greatest writers of the church knew this truth. Read the end of Screwtape Letters. We are victorious in Christ. 
We're all born with this need for security and our father is reaching out with his arms. And he says, child, I want to call you my child. Rest secure in my arms. Rest in me that I am for you, that in me and in Christ, you can be more than conquerors. And so in him, we stand. And we know that though his hand comes against us, his heart is always for us. This is who our father is. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. God, what an incredible father you are to invite us into your unconditional fortress-like love through Christ. Lord, we are weak, Father, but you are strong. You are enough for us. Jesus, I pray whatever you are stirring in the hearts of people in this room, Lord, would you give us hearts and wills to respond to what you are stirring in us. Father, I pray even even for my own soul, Lord, would you give me a greater confidence in these realities, Lord, that, that I might know that you are for me. And Father, I pray the same thing for every person in this room. Even as we walk out into this week, would we celebrate, God, that you are for us. There is nothing that could separate us from your love. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.